This podcast is brought to you by Excess Energy Drinks and Excess Sports Nutrition, exclusively from Amway. Excess offers a collection of active and adventure products to help you energize, hydrate, strengthen, and recover. Follow us on Instagram at Excess Nation. It's inside the Amway Coaches Poll from USA Today Sports, the college football podcast that gives fans the inside scoop on who's moving up, who's moving down, and what's happening with all the big news of the week. Dan Wolken and Paul Meyerberg will take you through this week's poll, interview coaches, and break down the sport like nobody else. Starting now. And welcome back to the Inside the Amway Coaches Poll podcast presented by USA Today Sports. I'm Dan Wolken, joined by Paul Meyerberg. We're going to be joined later by our college's editor at USA Today Sports, Eric Smith. He's going to talk to us about how we put this poll together. Take us really inside the Amway Coaches Poll, everything that goes into it. This has been a big week for polls, Paul. Huge week for polls. Yeah, polls had a... It's been a spotty week for polls, um, but yeah, polls are um, about to go back into hibernation for two years, except for our poll, which will remain through the end of the regular season. Yeah, so uh, we're, we'll talk a little bit about the poll itself. It was a, quite a night in college football, capped off, of course, by Clemson losing to Notre Dame. And uh, we will refrain from talking too much about the super spreader event that uh, happened on the field after the game is uh, however many students were there in attendance ended up on the field. And I don't know what that's going to mean for Notre Dame and all of the COVID uh, issues that they might have coming out of this, but Alabama is your new number one in the country. Clemson down to number four. Is that fair? Is that a fair drop for Clemson, given that this was a double overtime game? They didn't have Trevor Lawrence as their starting quarterback. They're going to get another shot, you would think, at Notre Dame in terms of the playoff and the ACC championship game. They'll have a chance. It, it feels like one of those games to me that was a lot of fun. It, it's obviously going to be remembered for a long time, and it's a huge win for Notre Dame. But in the grand scheme of things, I'm not sure it's all that important. No, and, and it, it, in the grand scheme of things, it, it doesn't give me any sort of like overwhelming confidence that Notre Dame would win the, the rematch. Like you said, Lawrence was out, even if Uyunglele played fantastically. I mean, Trevor Lawrence is a uh, generational talent, so you're missing him on offense. James Skalski is your defensive quarterback. He's out. Tyler Davis is a is a um, all-conference interior lineman, defensive end. He was out. Um, not a whole lot to me that screams Notre Dame is going to win this rematch on an individual level. As Brian Kelly said, it was a, a validation game for this specific Notre Dame team. And you can't ever take that away, but yeah, Clemson at number four is totally fair. Uh, and we should get into the, the long-term ramifications in terms of the impact on the playoff, but, um, just a great win, but I don't know if anyone right now would say, Hey, Notre Dame's clearly going to win the rematch because they are headed for a rematch in December. And Notre Dame is number two, and it's really, I think, a reflection of just how consistent they've been under Brian Kelly. There was a point in his tenure, you know, they, they make the national championship game in 2012. Looking back on it, they were not of the class of team that should have been in that game. I think we can all recognize that, but they, they got there. 
They got blown out by Alabama. And then they kind of went into the wilderness for a few years. And they, they it didn't look like Brian Kelly was going to be there for much longer, whether that was going to be his choice or the schools. And then he had his big epiphany. He had a total staff overhaul. He had a philosophy overhaul. And look, regardless of what you think of Notre Dame, regardless of what you think of that win or whether or not they could win a rematch, I think that that win last night is kind of the culmination of everything they've been for the last you know four years, really steady, really consistent, really bought in, really a level of belief that they've maintained in what they're doing. And I think you can't deny that they've become a, a very, just a, just an excellent program year in, year out. Yeah, for sure. And, and yeah, I, you'd be remiss not to, to credit Kelly for his reinvention, maybe not his personal reinvention, but the reinvention of this program off of 2016. Um, they weren't that great before 2016. Like obviously 2016 is when they bottomed out at four and eight. And that was what caused the staff overhaul and reimagination of what Notre Dame could be. Yeah. They've reached the title game in 2012 and they were outclassed. It wasn't that great a program. I mean, it was a good program. It was a top 15 program, obviously Notre Dame, but yeah, they've taken the next step the last four years. Um, yeah, I, I don't want to be dismissive of Notre Dame and by saying that they lose the rematch because that's way ahead of where we are right now. I mean, that's a month and a couple of weeks um, in the immediate sense on Sunday, November 8th. Yeah, I mean, I think this was a really meaningful win for Notre Dame beyond the fact that, hey, we just beat a number one for the first time in 20-something in years. I think specifically for this team, it's I don't think they have a chip on their shoulder. They're Notre Dame. I think they have a lot of swagger. But yeah, you could just hear from the way I talked about them losing to Clemson in December that there was not a whole lot of respect afforded Notre Dame as a team that could not just get the playoff, but actually win a game there or win the national championship. Um, If you didn't think that going into Saturday night, today, Sunday, you obviously have to believe that that Notre Dame can get to the top four, stay there, and, and then even win a game when they get there. Let me play devil's advocate a little bit on this idea that, all right, Clemson's going to get their guys back healthy. They're going to win the rest of their games. Notre Dame is going to win the rest of their games. There's going to be this rematch and Clemson's going to win and go to the playoff. Let me just give one little fly in the ointment here. Clemson had 34 rushing yards in this game. 34. Travis Etienne, 28 yards on 18 carries. Uh, Obviously, DJ Uyunglele, I thought was great, and we'll talk about him more in a second. But Notre Dame had 500 yards of offense. They totally shut down Clemson's running game. Why is that not repeatable in terms of their performance at the line of scrimmage? Well, it is, and it's it's been going on for about three weeks in a row now. I mean, they did okay against Syracuse, but obviously Boston College and Notre Dame have found a blueprint. Um, Clemson's not a juggernaut. I think there are issues on defense, clearly. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact they don't have a receiver who is going to strike fear into people. They don't have a number one guy like a T. Higgins or or Sammy Watkins, if you want to go back even farther, or or whomever, um, about – who has that ability to put the fear into, into your back seven. And I think the inability to do that, even though you have two great quarterbacks, I think it's allowing teams to cheat a little bit. And if you can stop the running game, you know, Clemson is still very, very, very good. I just don't know if they're unstoppable. So I don't know what that means going forward for Clemson. Look like 
the reason that we could pencil them in against Notre Dame already is because who's left on the schedule that's going to be able to take advantage of that. Oh, no, you know? they're, they're going to win all the rest of their games. I'm just saying in a rematch, are we totally sure that Clemson is like the clear favorite? I don't know that I buy that. No, yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And even if, like, I think we all imagined and, and created the scenario in our minds going into last night that Notre Dame could win, even though I did say last week I thought they'd lose by 10 or whatever. You still have to imagine the scenario that they could win Notre Dame. Um, and I think even if you didn't imagine that scenario, it was more like, oh, if they win, Clemson would obviously beat them in December. And then, hey, two ACC teams in the top four. Right. That's at least how my mind was going. Um, I think we need to re, uh, re, re kind of picture that because clearly Notre Dame can go toe to toe with Clemson. And if you can stop them up front, I mean, when's the last time Clemson was really, really one dimensional on offense? I mean, it's been a while. And at this point, the last two weeks, at least they're really one dimensional. And that's, I mean, let alone a recipe for winning the ACC. This is a program that wants to win a national championship every single year. And, and you're not going to do that. You may sneak out of the ACC, but you're not going to beat Alabama, Ohio state. If you're that one dimensional. Last thing on this game. So DJ Uyunglele, 29 of 44, 439 yards passing, two touchdowns, no interceptions. If you just take those raw numbers, Trevor Lawrence has not had a game that good in a Clemson uniform. Now we can look at other factors and I'm, I'm trying to make a point here, which is during the game last night, I said on Twitter, if you were to tell me, that Clemson's best quarterback was playing last night. I don't know that I would have a great argument against why that's true. And look, we all know Trevor Lawrence, once he goes through the protocols and gets healthy, he's going to be the starting quarterback. But I got to say, I mean, in the two week sample size we've seen of DJ, I, I, I don't know that I have hundred percent confidence that Trevor Lawrence is the best quarterback on Clemson's roster. <laughs> I know that sounds crazy, but I mean, that's it's just crazy. the way I feel. That's crazy. That's crazy. I understand where you're coming from. He made a couple throws last night um, that were, uh, you know, made you pop out of your seat. They were pro. Your yeah. Pro. I mean, they're pro throws clearly, clearly pro throws. Um, his future is limitless just today. Trevor Lawrence is the best QB on the roster. He's the best QB in the country. He's a franchise quarterback. I mean, no one wants to say something this ridiculous, but anyway, like if someone told us came from the future in a DeLorean and said, Trevor Lawrence is in the hall of fame, you know, obviously we would buy that. He has that sort of potential. Um, but we're talking about 2021, 2022. I don't know what to say about DJ. I mean, let's just talk about your first two starts. You've been holding a clipboard. You've had, let's see, three, 14, 15, 16, 17 throws as a collegian collegiate, whatever, behind Trevor Lawrence. You're just watching this guy. And then you're thrust in on a Thursday because Trevor Lawrence fails a COVID test. You're down double digits to Boston College. You key that comeback. You're down double digits at Notre Dame in your first career road start. You force overtime. You have three touchdowns. You average 10 yards per attempt. Um, you got to think that this is the start of a special, special college career. In the same way that after Trevor Lawrence burned Alabama, Two years ago, we all knew that he was headed for something amazing. I think DJ's obviously got that potential. But like you said, on the 21st, when they're back in action, uh, he's back to holding the clipboard because Trevor Lawrence will be the starter. I mean, there's no doubt about that. No, there's no doubt about it. I'm just – I'm not trying to stir the pot. I just – the glimpses we're getting of, of this 
they look pretty special. So, um, and if Trevor Lawrence comes back and doesn't play great, I mean, are people going to start clamoring for, for DJ to play more? I, I don't know. Oh gosh. I don't know. That's a, that's a good point. I don't, I don't think so. I think Trevor Lawrence has so much credibility built up. Um, I don't think that's going to happen, but you're on Twitter. Crazier things have been said. They get said every, every day. Um, all right. So Alabama one, Notre Dame two, Ohio state, number three, they beat Rutgers 49, 27 in a game that was only notable just because uh, Greg Schiano seemed to pull out all the stops. And uh, I guess that's just going to be Rutgers's thing this year is trick plays and onside kicks and laterals and whatever they got to do to scratch and claw to hang in. But uh, Ohio state passed that test. Clemson four. Now we get to number five, Florida. Big, big, big win for Florida over Georgia in a game that uh, I think we kind of sensed that this was coming because we have just seen the Georgia offense sputter so badly. The quarterback issues mounting. It, it just never looked like if, if – if Florida could play the kind of game that they want to play and make it a little bit up and down that, that Florida was going to win and 44, 28, but I don't even think that tells the story because you look inside the numbers, final stats in this game, Florida had 571 yards of offense. Georgia had 277. I mean, it was a debacle. Yeah. They had two Oh two after the game's first play um, for Georgia after they had a touchdown on, for that long touchdown run. Yeah, you forget that it was 14 nothing. You're right. And you're thinking, oh, Georgia can kind of sit on Florida and, and you know, squeeze the life out of them. Um, Georgia's offense is just pure trash, just total trash. And, and there's no way around it. I don't know how you think that you could play for a national title with this, with this collection of skill talent, this play at quarterback, this lack of imagination. Um, it, was, it was so much more apparent to me against Florida than it was against Alabama, strangely because I think Florida really exposed Georgia as a program as being, you know, two steps behind the curve because Florida has redrawn itself as an offense behind Mullen, Trask, Pitts, who are all these kind of elite thinkers and players. And Georgia's in comparison to stuck in the stone age. I mean, they had 300 fewer yards of offense overall, three picks um, outside of that one long run really did nothing on the ground. So a, a real thorough thrashing by Florida, um, I don't know if I want to get into Florida still being ahead of Texas A&M. Texas A&M beat Florida, you know, people. But still, in terms of the SEC East, <laughs> huge win for Florida. And uh, it sets up an Alabama game in, in December. So it's a playoff impacting win for the Gators. No, there's no doubt. And, and honestly, the score could have been even more lopsided. Kyle Pitts uh, got taken out of the game on kind of a dirty hit. Uh in the second half and, and Florida's offense kind of stalled out a little bit after that, but they had 38 points in the first half. Uh, Kyle Trask, 474 yards of offense. Yeah. And, and Georgia's now just kind of thrown stuff at the wall. I, I don't know what's going on over there, but um, you know, it's one of those things. If you just watch Florida for the first time on Saturday, I think you have to come away extremely impressed. I mean, Kyle Pitts is, he is the best tight end maybe since Gronk in college football. I mean, it's not out of the question. No, definitely not. And, you know, it, here's what's interesting before he went out. I think if you hadn't 
if you had heard of him and like you hadn't watched a whole lot of Florida football, but you had heard, oh, this guy is going to be a top five pick as a tight end, game-changing talent, you might have been somewhat unimpressed, strangely, even though he did have a long touchdown catch. But it's so obvious when you watch Florida play that him just being on the field opens up the entire offense. So his impact, yeah, in terms of being an impact tight end, you'd have to go back to Gronk or, or maybe someone we're blanking on to find someone who matches that talent. Um, because every time he's on the field, you've got to devote resources to stop him. And it just opens things up for Trask. So credit Dan Mullen um, for building around some really impressive pieces for developing Trask. Because this is probably, you know, one beat Alabama's 1A best offense in the SEC and, and clearly one good enough to play for a national championship. Number six, A&M. They look pretty good. They went South Carolina 48-3. to They seem to be hitting their stride. The problem with A&M as I see it, and there's certainly now more talk than ever that, okay, there's, there's five and one. They've got Tennessee, Ole Miss, LSU, and then they finish at Auburn, which is obviously the most difficult game. They're not going to play in the SEC championship. So they could be sitting there at nine and one. Do they kind of backdoor into the playoff? I don't know that I buy it. I mean, they have the one win over, over Florida, which is a great win, but there's not a whole lot else there. They were non-competitive against Alabama and they're not going to have a whole lot of heft to their resume. Otherwise, like, I think that if you have the situation where Clemson turns the tables on Notre Dame in the ACC title game, I think Notre Dame is still ahead of A&M in that pecking order. Yeah. Like they benefit from Florida beating Georgia, obviously, because a rational person would remember that they won that matchup and, and give them that credit. But yeah, they're they're more hurt by the fact that ACC the ACC might have those two teams with one loss in December. So it's I mean A and M they could play themselves into this. They don't need that much help to be there at nine and one. If anything, they they benefit from the fact that they lost to Alabama because then they don't have to play another game and potentially lose that game. Um, but it, it's going to be it's not as clear for them as maybe maybe it looked before Notre Dame beat Clemson. I agree with that totally. Um, number seven, Cincinnati. They continue to roll. They took care of Houston. And how about number eight, BYU, in a game we talked about before, a game that uh, a lot of us uh, were really uh, interested in, in watching Friday night. And it kind of hyped up to watch it, but it really wasn't much to watch. BYU beat Boise State 51-17 on the blue turf. This was the game where, okay, is BYU for real? Because they had they had been 7-0 and but hadn't really played anybody. Uh, and this was by far their, their most, uh, difficult game and they were just awesome. So look, BYU is not going to have the schedule strength to make the playoff, but it's, it's very clear. They're going to be 10 and zero. And what do you do with them? I mean, I guess you put them in the cotton ball, right. Or something like that. Yeah. It, this is going to be between Cincinnati and BYU, both in the top 10, you would think in the debut playoff rankings, it's going to be a chore for the committee to get through. Um, in Boise's defense, at one point, I think um, they were down to their fourth QB. I mean, they definitely were down to their fourth QB and probably were sending out text alerts to the to the donor base to see who else had eligibility to just in case. So it wasn't like Boise was totally, you know, as manned as BYU. They were a little understaffed. But this is BYU's crowning moment for this season because Boise is obviously a national brand name. If you watched any of that game on Saturday, I'm not making excuse for Boise. They're losing either way. 
But if you stayed with it in the second half, you saw why BYU's offense is so dangerous because you give them just an inch and they're going to grab the whole thing. So they've played themselves into the conversation. You had an interesting piece this past week about BYU taking advantage, and, and that's probably not the right phrasing, of the COVID era because it's allowed them to play a different sort of schedule and make some noise. That's true, but you know, as you know, it's going to be to their detriment in the end because if you had spiced in a Utah win or an Arizona State win into this 8-0 start, we'd be talking about them a lot differently. The, the schedule's just not there for them to be in the top four, obviously. No doubt about that. Uh, number nine, Miami, they were able to uh, squeak by NC State, 44-41. How about number 10, Indiana? The Hoosiers are in the top 10. They spanked Michigan. <laughs> I mean, just – Jeez, it, so bad. I, they, so bad. They made Michigan look like a Sunbelt team. So bad. I mean, they hadn't beaten Michigan since 87. Right. And they hadn't beaten once since I think their Rose Bowl season in 67. That was their only win in the last, you know, 40 something years. They just made it look so easy. And Michigan was so bland and so vanilla and just never in this. And you look at the two teams, like Indiana's this dynamic offense, guys flying around the football, high energy. This is, it's not worse than Michigan State just because they were favored by 20 something against the Spartans. But in a way, it is worse because the energy was just totally lacking. Coming off a really bad loss, you would have hoped they rebound, but Indiana controlled this for 60 minutes. So they're very good, no doubt. Um, again, coming out of it, I think the story is Michigan's just complete and utter flop of a season at one and two. I mean, just a flop, total flop. It's um, real problematic for them because uh, what do you do? And we talked about it last week as well, but – they, the administration there, like, I don't think that, you know, Mark Schlissel, who's the president, I mean, he's not a football guy anyway. Like, I don't think he's sitting there saying we got to fire Jim Harbaugh, but um, this whole idea that, well, who are you going to get? Well, I think you could get a lot of people to do what Michigan's done the last few weeks. I think there's a lot of coaches who could do that and a lot of mediocre ones. And I think there's a lot of good ones who could do a whole lot better. Yeah. Look, like I'll do this. Like they're going to pay someone a half a million bucks to do this search. I'll make it super easy. Uh, Google.com Iowa state football hit enter uh, hit the main page, click coaches, click Matt Campbell, and then you're done. Yeah. You can pay me five bucks for that. That's the easy hire for Michigan. Don't overthink it. Um, Harbaugh is obviously it's going to take something more than just like going one and two for them to move on. But if they decide to move on, if both parties did just go to Ames, geez, this guy can coach. Yeah, I think, uh, I think that's an obvious call. Matt Campbell's really good. Matt Campbell is, he, he coached at Toledo. That's like, I don't know, 45 minutes from Ann Arbor. Mm-hmm. Um, it, to me, it's it's super simple, but uh, that's still a couple steps ahead. So we'll see how that shakes out. As far as Indiana, I mean, what I don't know that there's a whole lot more we can say other than just Tom Allen has really done a great job, and they're they're legit good. Yeah, and look, there's one thing that's interesting about Tom Allen, um, like the image of a football coach today in 2020. It's not like the one we grew up with. It's not the guy who barks and has a dip in all the time and, and stays up till 4 a.m. They stay up late, but it's not quite the, the old school barking drill sergeant of a football coach. But even in this era where there's been a reconsideration of how you interact with young men, Tom Allen is different in that he's um, 
he's always talking about how much he loves his team and how much his team loves him and how they drive forward on positivity and optimism. Um, he's not a screamer as far as I know. Uh, he's a really good motivator. Um, and he's a careful kind of program builder. And I think he's built a lot of friends and allies in the big 10 based on how he carries himself and how his program plays. So he's a clear choice for big 10 coach of the year, maybe even national coach of the year. And he's a testament that you don't need to be a screamer. You don't need to be a cursor to, to get guys to play hard. So I think that's a really nice story coming out of the big 10. All right. We've talked about Georgia, number 11, number 12, Oregon. They had a nice solid 35, 14 win over Stanford to open the season. Tyler Shaw was, was uh, good enough um, in his first start. CJ Verdell had a great game, 105 rushing yards. I didn't watch a ton of this game to be honest with you, because uh, there was obviously a lot else going on on Saturday night between uh, uh, the Clemson Notre Dame game and just other stuff, but uh, good win for, for them. Oklahoma State, number 13. They were able to uh, – is wiggle out of trouble the right word? I, I, this it, was heartbreaking for Kansas State. It's, this yeah, was heartbreaking. Yeah, they were up 12 nothing at halftime, right? 12 nothing at halftime. Fell down 13-12 because they sputtered. They were driving – I think they were at the 15, down 13-12. Will Howard, their freshman QB, who's in for Skylar Thompson, fumbles. Oklahoma State returns it for a touchdown. 20 to 13, 20 to 12, rather. Kansas State drives on the ensuing drive to score 2018 and fails to convert the two-point conversion. So heartbreaking for K-State. Oklahoma State's defense is really good, but you can tell, like, they haven't been able to play together as an offense. They didn't have Tylen Wallace on Saturday, and, and the offense is, is not very good at this point. But if their offense can rally into form, they're on pace to win the Big 12. Wisconsin, number 14, they are still sidelined with COVID issues. Marshall, number 15, they had a pretty easy win over UMass. Iowa State, number 16, they took care of Baylor. Coastal Carolina, they keep climbing. Or actually, they dropped a little bit this week. I guess they got passed. So they were 16 last week. They're 17 this week. They beat South Alabama. Oklahoma, they are trying to inch their way back up at number 18, SMU 19. Let's talk about USC at number 20. I, I I don't know how to even characterize this game. It's, you know, one in 20, one in 50. I mean, they're down two, almost two touchdowns. They're down 13 points with four and a half minutes to go. They should not win that game. I, they had to convert two fourth and lo- pretty long plays to score touchdowns to win that game. They had to recover an onside kick. I, whatever the probability is, I don't know the numbers. It, it's it, it's a game that you you don't win ever. You never win that game, and and then they but they won it. They won it and they broke Arizona State's heart. Yeah, they they definitely should not have won this game. I mean, it's not just they had to score on fourth down. I mean, their first touchdown to make it twenty eight. I'm sorry, twenty seven twenty one um, was like thrown in the corner of the end zone where there were five guys standing there was tipped in the air and right into a, into a brew McCoy's hands. I think McCoy caught that first touchdown. So there was a lot of luck to go into it. I'm not saying USC is some sort of underdog. They were due a little bit of luck. It's been a tough couple of years. So I guess they got lucky and they rolled the dice. I'm not sure how that's, how that's going to carry over, but just looking at the South, um, I think Arizona state's their biggest threat. I think Utah's rebuilding. UCLA obviously is not good again. Colorado is not going to be great. Arizona is just complete um, dumpster fire. So I think you can probably say USC, if they can clean things up just a little bit, is going to run the table 
um, at least in division play and have a chance to, to win the Pac-12 and, and maybe maybe get into the top four. So that's the, the, the silver lining. You got lucky, but, you know, now you're kind of thinking or imagining in a, a, a perfect regular season if you can fix one or two things. Yeah, I think there's a pretty decent likelihood that they're going to be undefeated. I just don't know what that what that will get them in terms of national credibility with with that schedule. I, I don't know that it's it's going to be quite enough. That's just that's just my gut feeling. But anything can happen. It's a it's a strange year. Um, Auburn twenty one. Let's talk a little bit about Liberty at number twenty two. Hugh Freeze seven and zero. They are in the coaches poll. Wow. Uh, what a game. They beat Virginia Tech 38-35. As I'm sure most people who listen to this podcast know, it's a 57-yard field goal, something like that. They're lining up to win the game. Virginia Tech blocks it, runs it back for a touchdown. They're all celebrating thing, and they won. But Justin Fuente had actually called timeout like a fraction of a second before the play. So Liberty gets a do-over. They make the field goal. They win the game. Justin Fuente feels awful stupid, stupid decision to call that timeout. He says he wasn't trying to freeze the guy, but regardless, I mean, I don't necessarily put too much of the blame on Fuente. That's something that, that happens and you still don't necessarily expect the guy to make the field goal, but um, things are just rolling in Liberty's direction. And now like you go on all these message boards. I mean, I was on the South Carolina message board. I was on the Tennessee message board. I was on the Michigan message board. I was on the, the Penn state message board. And they're talking about Hugh freeze. And it's like, it feels like an alternate universe to me, but um, just, it's interesting when, when Hugh was making his comeback, a lot of people around Hugh were sort of posing the question. All right. Would it be better for him in his career rehabilitation to go be an offensive coordinator in the sec or somewhere, or would it better for be, be better for him to go take a bad job like, like this and be a head coach and try to do it that way. And I think the answer is clear because he's done a great job at Liberty. They're seven and oh, they're going to win, you know, probably nine games or something like that. And he's going to be a hot commodity again. Yeah. Um, and we, we, I feel like we talked about this a few times, I guess, Dan, it, it depends if an SEC school and let's just say South Carolina ponies up and buys out a Will Muschamp or, or, or another team takes a step and, and throws a chunk of money at making a change. But it's your opinion, right? If, if a job opens in the SEC, um, there are obvious hurdles to overcome in terms of convincing the SEC that Hugh Freeze is a viable contender. But if it's okayed, I mean, he's going to land in the SEC, right? I mean, well, it seems obvious. There's been sort of this uh, unwritten rule that SEC schools shouldn't hire him. I mean, it's just, it's just a fact. Like it had, they, they'll never acknowledge it. They'll never say it. Nobody will ever, you know, Greg Sankey will deny it if you ever ask him, but it's just a fact that mm-hmm. any school that would want to hire him has basically been told don't. Now that can't last forever, right? You can only do that for so long. It's, it's been several years now. And, and the truth is the thing with the phone calls to the, to the escorts or whatever that to me is the least of, of the concerns as far as Hugh freeze and where schools minds should be on, on him. I think that one's pretty easy to, to get over. I think it's the fact that they were in a major NCAA thing. And what Ole Miss did to, to build that thing pissed off so many people 
so many people and just sort of the brazen way that they, they did it and violated rules um, and, and they paid for it. Right. And so that's a big question. And then the other thing is just Hugh is kind of a, he's got rabbit ears, you know, he hears every bit of criticism. He, he hears every uh, slight, every joke at his expense, and he just doesn't let it go. And so there's a certain level of job in college football where that's a really negative quality to have because it impacts your ability to just focus on what you need to focus on. Uh, but there's going to be jobs open, maybe not this year, but the year after there, Hey, there may be some this year. You know, if you're South Carolina, you're going to be under a lot of pressure. If you fire Will Muschamp to hire Hugh freeze, you just are. And I don't know if they can or if they will, but uh, the guy has proven yet again that uh, he can get a program turned around. So, yeah, well, he's got Butch Jones syndrome or it's a Jim McElwain syndrome that you, you can't stop listening to what people write about you. Well, that's, um, Butch. that's Butch for sure. That's Butch. Yeah. So yeah, look, the personal stuff, like you said, like what he did on his own time, you can, you can scheme around that to use a football term but it's the recruiting stuff and it's the day-to-day violations of, of the basic standards and bylaws that, that we are governed by as uh, in the FBS that I think would give a lot of people reason for concern. But again, if you want to win football games, Hugh Freeze might be your best pick. All right. So we'll just finish this off real quick. Number 23, Northwestern, they uh, beat Nebraska. Nebraska is kind of a sob story that we probably don't really need to talk too much about at this hey, point. But about Northwestern, this is an incredible stat. It's a great turnaround. Played, right. They went four and eight last year. Uh, Pat Fitzgerald does not give a shit about what people say about his program. Like you knew they were going to bounce back. So I'm not surprised by that, but I love this stat. I know they haven't played great teams, but three games in, they have yet to allow a point in the second half. I mean, every fan in the country wants a coaching staff that makes halftime adjustments. Um, You got to love the fact that Northwestern has been so good in the second half and they're three and oh in the big 10. No, absolutely. Uh, number 24, Texas. Number 25, Army. That is your Amway Coaches Poll. Now let's talk to Eric Smith, college sports editor at USA Today Sports, about the process of putting this poll together, what goes into it each week. should be pretty interesting. Inside the Amway Coaches Poll from USA Today Sports. Go beyond the bubbles with excess sparkling plus waters. Sparkling waters with unique ingredients and flavors to help fuel adventures. Your body needs hydration, so do something more with sparkling water plus electrolytes. Added essential amino acids help you build lean muscle when combined with regular strength training and a balanced diet. Recover with a blend of magnesium and glucosamine, the perfect sparkling waters for hydration, fuel, and recovery. Excess sparkling plus waters just up the game beyond the bubbles. Follow us on Instagram at XS Nation to experience more. And stay tuned after the podcast to learn why staying hydrated matters with professional surfer and fitness expert Anthony Walsh. Now, back to Inside the Amway Coaches Poll with Dan Wolken and Paul Meyerberg. All right, so we've got college sports editor Eric Smith on the podcast this week. A little bit of a change up from uh, what we normally do with coaches. And we wanted to have Eric on, of course, this is a week where we're talking about polls a lot. Uh, Eric uh, does or coordinates the Amway coaches poll. And Eric, I just kind of want to talk a little bit with you about the process 
for how the poll gets put together, what it's like each week. And let's start with figuring out who's going to vote in this thing. How does that work? Okay. So pretty much, uh, you know, this year is a little bit different, but basically every year, you know, we take half of the 130 teams uh, in the bowl subdivision. Um, and then it's 50% uh, representation and it's apportioned by conference. So if there are uh, 14 teams in the SEC, they will have seven coaches on the panel. Um, and then that goes for all the conferences and we do have representation also from the independents. And that is usually two, three, four coaches, depending on sometimes, uh, you know, some conferences might have a person that's not available or whatever, but essentially that's what it is. It's 50% of each conference. That's why you see, um, you know, some names that you might not expect. And that's why you see some names that you do expect, but not across all, um, leagues and all, uh, coaches. So is it just like a rotation of the coaches within each league or how does, how do the specific coaches who vote get chosen? So, I mean, obviously this is a AFCA process. Also, just to be clear, it's not USA today is not involved in the process. Um, they do the, uh, process of selecting the coaches. Um, you know, it's generally speaking based on interest. Um, and then there's, you know, if there's more interest than 50%, then they have to do some kind of selection process, uh, on their own. It's usually um, some fashion, uh, you know, where there's a rotation because we have, you know, across most conferences, a pretty decent sized rotation. And we deal with most over like a three, four year period, we'll deal with most of the coaches who are interested uh, in voting. So Eric, this year is obviously a little bit different, right? Wasn't there, can you explain, I know we both know, but could you explain the, the process of recalibrating the poll when the big 10 dropped out and the pac 12 and then came back in and what you had to go through to, to keep this poll together. Yeah. So, um, you know, when we started and there was only three of the power five and there was obviously the Mac and the mountain West also not playing. We, the initial poll only, um, used coaches from the conferences that, uh, were playing. And, um, you know, we had a preseason poll that had the original panel. And then once the season was shut down, we started that first first panel. I believe it was 42, uh, and then slowly have built up. Uh, we have si this year we have 62 of this of what we would normally have 65 as teams have come on and have chosen uh, after the their leagues have come back to not vote. And we've respected that. We didn't go through the process of replacing. We just have a, a, what we think is a good panel. 62 of 127 is, is a good representation. We think of the entire landscape. And what's like, uh, what's a Sunday look like for you? And, and in terms of <laughs> <laughs> getting, hearing from these 62 guys, uh, tracking them down, I know in many cases, um, walk us through what it looks like to actually compile the poll on a random Sunday. Sure. Um, so we sent out an email on Friday, sort of a reminder email that gives people their voting information, which is, is pretty standard throughout the season. Uh, we will get people voting sometimes on Saturday night. Uh, and their voting process can be a number of different ways. It can be that we have a hotline, a 1-800 number that, that people can call. Uh, some people will send email. Uh, other people actually will, will uh, text me their ballots. Um, and uh, so we get some votes Saturday night. Uh, that's usually the West Coast um, because, you know, if you're a West Coast voter and we remind them weekly, um, you know, please vote on Saturday night unless you want to have to vote on 9 a.m. On, on Saturday morning or Sunday morning. 
And we have a this year we have a Hawaii voter, uh, Todd Graham's on the panel, and so he's definitely voting Saturday night because you know he'd have, we'd be calling him at, at five a or six a.m. his time. Um, so we get votes Saturday night, and then and, um, Sunday morning they start you know trickling in. You know, it can be as early as eight o'clock uh, when coaches are getting up and you know starting for their next week. Um, I would say by about 11 o'clock, our deadline is noon, just to clarify. I would say by about 11 o'clock, we have at least 75% of the ballots. So there's not a lot of chasing. The other thing that you learn over time is how coaches, coaches are going to vote at 1145 or sometimes so voted which is fine. They're before the deadline. Uh, we don't have pre-acting. We notice a circuit. Reach out to them. You know, we, I have cell numbers for coaches. Um, I have cell numbers for their backups. Um, and, you know, this year actually has been a great panel. I don't know if it's the uniqueness of the coronavirus, but like even this week we were, we had every vote by 12. Um, sometimes there's a straggler or two um, that we maybe have to call, um, you know, cause circumstances come up. You know, I, we had a coach this morning, last night, um, didn't get back, you know, home till 630, but he was on his way into the office and then he, he sent me his ballot by, by noon. So, um, you know, we have a lot of contact with them and we're, we're, you know, when you, I've been doing this, this is my fifth year. Um, when you do it that long, you kind of have a sense of like how, how people vote. And, you know, if you're proactive and reaching out to the right people, we generally don't, we used to have a lot more problems chasing people. Now we have less problems. So it's usually one or two when a circumstance comes up. You have that 1-800 number you said? Is that something people use? It sounds like something out of the 1980s. <laughs> it is. And some do call. And, you know, um, so, you know, just, just clarify the process a little more. So Eddie Tamanis is my, my partner in crime. Uh, he's actually is the one that sort of inputs all the data. Um, and we do it that way because um, there's, uh, you know, sometimes we see a ballot where maybe there's, you know, a coach didn't see a result. And this is actually pretty rare. It's actually been a lot rarer in the last couple of years, but we'll see like a ballot where, you know, maybe they missed that like Florida beat Georgia and they voted Georgia ahead of Florida. And we'll, we'll, we'll just message them back and be like, Hey, so we want to be in, in charge of that input process. Um, but I would say probably it's about 50, 50 in terms of using the hotline and using the other methods. Um, and usually the same people call that, that call every week and the same people that email or text, do that every week, but sometimes there's some crossover based upon circumstances. And yeah, I mean, it's just, a, they, you know, the, and, and it's the coaches voices. Like we know the coaches, most of them are calling in and reading off their ballots. So um, now they, now that said, when uh, yeah, I know this comes up a lot with uh, what well, SIDs voting, they do have a backup person and they are allowed to vote for them. And the requirement is that that person is, you know, representing the, what the coach's ballot is. So the coach has to fill out the ballot and then the, the person can, he doesn't have to be physically the one that calls or emails it in. But um, a lot of times it's the coaches who call and, you know, it's, it's not to, uh, we're kind of sworn to secrecy on some of this stuff, but it's a lot of the major coaches are calling or emailing themselves. Yeah. So, so, so Eric, just, Eric, just to be clear, I, Dan, I want to get this very clear. There's a <laughs> chance on a Sunday that you will dial into the 800 number voicemail and it will be Ed Orgeron going 25, uh, Houston, one of four, Army. Like that yeah. is what you will hear from 25 to one. If Ed Orgeron calls, and I won't say that he does or doesn't, uh, that would be what we would hear. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah. Okay. Never knew that. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm sorry to breaking news here on this. <laughs> but no, it's but not actually, as, it's not as crazy as it thinks. I mean, I guess, you know, when you've done it so long, it's not as big a deal, but I can totally understand from that perspective. Like, wow, that's really weird that, that they would take their time to do that. But you know, some do. It's just a, a coach's preference. Well, I think, though, that's good for fans to hear because I, I, a lot of people may have the impression that the coaches who are voting in the poll don't. Uh, do it themselves or they don't take it seriously. And it's just something the SID does. And of course we've had coaches on the podcast. Uh, we've had Mac Brown. We've had a few others talking about how they vote and how seriously they take it. Uh, we had urban Meyer mm-hmm. you know, uh, mm-hmm. when he was coaching. So yeah, yeah. urban but, was fantastic, but yeah, but I'm saying like, that's good for people to understand that, that most of the time it is the coaches themselves who are submitting these ballots directly to us. Yes, that's true. Or it's somebody that I know is connected to the coach and I have a really strong knowledge of the fact that he's not, not voting for that coach. You know what I mean? Like, right. um, and because we're in contact with the coach very, at various points during the season. So, um, and the other part that going back to what you asked about the selection process, uh, you know, people aren't being forced to do this. Right. And I don't think people understand that as well. So like there are plenty of coaches who don't want to do it. And some big name coaches who have never opted to do it. And that's fine. Like, you know, cause we want them to be involved and engaged. Like that's the first step. If you're not interested in doing it, don't sign up to do it. So I think that that's probably a misnomer that we're just deciding like USA Today is going, here's the people we want for, for the coaches poll. And then you will be forced to do it. It's like, it's completely voluntary on their part. And I know that a lot of coaches and some significant coaches who haven't been selected through that selection process, who've been disappointed and let us know, say, Hey, like what happened? And you know, we refer them back to the AFCA in, in, in some cases, but we've also had media people reach out and say like, why hasn't this coach on the ballot or on the panel? And I was like, well, here's the process. Like this, this coach has been on before. He's been a great voter, but like, unfortunately, like on the, based on the rotation, he's not on. So um, yeah, they were, I mean, you know, we deal extensively with the AFCA. I know they take it very seriously. Um, I know they want the coaches to take it seriously. They make it clear that, you know, they should be the ones voting. If I was uncomfortable with that, I wouldn't be coming out as strong and saying, like, I have confidence in these voters because, like I said, dealing with them for five years, you have a really good sense of who's really into it and who's not. And we haven't, we haven't experienced that at all. Are you allowed to say, are you allowed to say like who any of your most enthusiastic voters are? Or is that like secret? This is what I want to know. I don't know. I don't, I'm going to, I'm going to stay silent on that. Let me get some clarification. I don't know how far, I mean, I can tell you can see the, the, I will say this. There's nobody who you would as a major recognizable name that I have any concerns about. Um, and, and that's just straight fact, like, and I know them that are calling. Um, and I know some of them that I understand their process. Uh, having talked to their person and talking or talking to them. Um, so, you know, you can look at the list uh, and see who, I mean, we have, you know, if you, I, I want to, I haven't, I'd have to double check, but I think we've got the top five teams all have coaches who are voting. Um, no, I'm sorry. Brian Day is not voting this year, but he has vote. He voted before this year. He did not vote or he did votes. And he, he was great too. Like in the first, first year. Um, but you know, so like the, the biggest names and I don't have any, I don't have any concerns about any of them. Um, and which is great because that's, you know, that's how we want it. You know, we want them involved as we want the others involved. 
um, and we want them engaged and you, you know, their ballots are consistent also. That's the other part you, you know, week to week, they don't vary very much in terms of like, you get weird outlying things where like, okay, maybe he didn't do that this week. Like right. it's pretty consistent every week. It's true, by the way, that Bill Snyder used to send his in via mail. He would send a letter in um, <laughs> when he would vote in the top. 25. I can't vouch for that because I didn't, I only worked with coach Snyder for one year and he definitely uh, did not send it by mail that year. <laughs> you may have, that's a question for Eddie who would also be a great person to talk to about this because he's been doing it since at least early nineties. I'm pretty sure. Cause he tells the wow. story about everybody. I'm sorry, mid nineties. Cause he tells a story about how he was the one tabulating the votes on the, in 97 uh, when it was uh, Michigan and that was when they, we voted for the final poll on the night of the last game. We now do it in the morning following because it's obviously less significant with the playoff. But before that, the poll used to come out, um, well, it would be New Year's night, New Year's Day night, you know, because that's when the last game was. And so they would compile it that night. And um, he can tell stories about everybody crowding around because that vote, I believe it was like two, po two points difference in the, in the final vote um, that Nebraska had to win the national championship there and uh, Michigan won the AP poll, but he would be definitely be a great person to talk to as well. One last thing, you know, you publish at the end of the year, everybody's votes, uh, which is interesting because throughout the season, it's a secret ballot. Um, do you have any sense of why they decided to do that? Why they, they offer that transparency because actually it's been somewhat controversial at times. It's gotten some coaches, I wouldn't say in trouble, but it's, it's forced them to sort of answer some questions about why they voted for one team over another. Yeah. So um, that was put in place uh, at the, during the BCS process when the poll became, you know, was one third of the selection process. And I, I believe it was the year that Auburn was undefeated, but didn't make the playoff, which I think was um, my memory might be here. Oh, three. Does that sound 04. right? Oh, four. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and shortly after, I think it was for the following year, they wanted to have that transparency. So the only ballots that we actually have made public are the ballots after the, the day after the championship games, because that was going to be representative of who made the, the one versus two game. And so they wanted to have that transparency. Uh, we have maintained that even, and we, we, so we don't publish the ballots at the end of the final game, uh, but we do publish them that championship weekend. And we've continued to do that. Uh, even though the coaches poll is not part of the technically part of the playoff selection process, um, just for transparency and how people are voting because whether it does have influence or not, you know, it, it could appear that way. And, um, it's something that, you know, we do. And, and I think, you know, you're right. There has been some notable cases, but it also, you know, the coaches are, you know, always will reach out and say, just making sure this one's public. They, so they're diligent about knowing that and wanting to have their ballot represent and not have mistakes and things like that. So, um, because, you know, if you, sometimes it's, a, you know, you, you can look at a ballot and it's black and white. You say, Oh, like, how do they vote this person here? Or how do they forget? But like sometimes, especially like if they had played the day before or something like that, or they, like you said, miss the results sometimes it can happen, but you know, nine times out of 10, like we'll always catch anything that's way out of line. And it's just, it's their preference. And, and you see, you know, you talk about like scoring in the Olympics and stuff and like some variances among, amongst, you know, 
geographical areas and all these things that sort of balance themselves out in a nice way um, to have a really good representation of the, of the country at large. All right. Well, uh, Eric, man, thanks for stopping by. Good, uh, good information. I actually think this will be interesting for people because they don't necessarily know everything that goes into it and, and what uh, you guys do uh, every Sunday morning to put that together. So uh, now I think that uh, the process is demystified a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I hope I didn't let too many skeletons out of the closet. I mean, I don't think I did, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think it's, it's important and, you know, and, and I don't want to feel like a PR person, but it's just, you know, we see it on Twitter all the time, and, and, and I'm not suggesting that there haven't been instances, certainly in years past before I was doing it, that stuff may have happened. But, you know, I, I can be pretty confident in the integrity of what people are doing. And, and it's good because, you know, that represents us well, represents the coaches well, represents college football well. Good to talk to you, man. Thanks for stopping right, by. Thanks. Not a problem. Thanks, sir. Bye. Inside the Amway Coaches Poll from USA Today Sports. All right, thanks to Eric Smith for coming on talking about the poll process for the Amway Coaches Poll. We will now turn our attention to next Saturday. And I'll be honest with you, not that inspiring. Kind of stinks because the schedule usually clears out for LSU Alabama, and that's the game that everyone's watching. The truth is, there's really nothing interesting about LSU Alabama this year. It will be on CBS in primetime, as it always is. But it is not uh, – there's only one good team that's going to be at that game. Yeah, this is, a, this is a poop schedule. There's nothing on here that does it for me. I mean, you want to see individual teams, but if you're looking for, like, a matchup to plan your day around, I mean, good luck. Really, good luck. This, is, this, is not, this isn't great. There's going to be a All lot right. of blowouts on Saturday. All right, so let me give you a couple things that uh, I think do stand out to me just in terms of this, the stakes for some of these teams and what what they need to do. Let's start Notre Dame. They've got to turn around off this Clemson win and go to Boston College. That smells a little bit trappy. I don't disagree with you. Boston College is well-coached, well-prepared. Notre Dame will be coming off the high of beating Clemson. I foresee like two, maybe even into three quarters of a close game before Notre Dame pulls away. Yeah, I mean, that's the way it would typically go. Uh, But uh, we saw Boston College give Clemson a run for their money. If what we've seen of Jeff Halfley so far in his short career, he seems to have a team that will get up and play hard against a big opponent. And I think as a coach, that's a really good quality to have. Dan, do you know what happened the last time Notre Dame beat a number one team? What happened the next week? Well, I'm guessing they lost. They lost to Boston College, right? Because it wasn't 93, they beat Florida State. And well, the that's next going week, way no, back. BC beat the, um, hit that field goal late. Like they hit a last second field goal, 141, 40, 41, 39, something like that. Um, so... I remember that game very vividly, and I think that's the last time they beat a number one, right? Didn't I see that last night? Was the note was Florida State ninety three? Well, I missed that, but I'll take your word for it. I, that's a long time ago. Yeah. Okay. So it could happen. Anyway, that, that's about the most intriguing matchup I see right now. So, in the theme of trap games, since we're talking about Notre Dame, is Arkansas a trap game to Florida? Now it is at home; it's the swamp. But I'll tell you, Arkansas. They're good defensively, and I think Florida will continue to score points because that's what they do. They better hope Kyle Pitts comes back. 
Barry Odom's going to have a good defensive game plan. He's had a good defensive game plan every single week this season for Arkansas. Uh, they beat Tennessee on Saturday, really dominated the second half. And we can talk about Tennessee in a second, but uh, I mean, th- to me, this is like Arkansas has got nothing to lose here. And they, they, I could see them making this competitive for about three quarters. Yeah, I, I agree. They play very loose. They um, aren't stressing after, you know, getting some wins underneath their belt. I don't know what you think. I mean, when you play A&M and Ole Miss, I, I, well, more like Ole Miss, that gives you a, a feeling for Florida's tempo, at least. The Florida skill talent, obviously, is well beyond what Ole Miss can bring to the table. Um, yeah, so I think Barry Odom, are they doing a Broyles award this year? If so, he's certainly in the mix for it based off what he's done on that defense. And the way they play suggests that they can at least slow Florida down. I mean, maybe they'll do a better job of it than Georgia did. And just as a side note, Felipe Franks, the quarterback for Arkansas, going back to Florida where he played quarterback oh. for a couple of years. Yeah, great. I, I forgot about that. Good, interesting subplot. So just mentioned Arkansas beating Tennessee. Um, let's talk a little bit about Tennessee because they've got AM at home, 330 ESPN game. To me, this is a game where Tennessee kind of needs to make a stand to figure out or to at least show who they are, because this thing could get ugly super, super, super quick on Jeremy Pruitt. Um, They've lost four games in a row. They absolutely laid down in the second half against Arkansas. They allowed Arkansas to out-physical them. They got out-coached. And Tennessee was flailing around with the quarterback deal. It's Garantano, and then it's Brian Moore, and then they throw in this freshman – Look, uh, Tennessee's got games coming up against A&M at Auburn. Vanderbilt will give them a win. And then they've got Florida at the end of the season. If form holds on Tennessee based on the records, that's three and seven. That's terrible. That's terrible. That's not good. Um, Each loss in this this four-game losing streak has been worse than the last. Um, I know Arkansas was the closest – but like you said, it, it never felt that close. Um, I don't know what to say about Jeremy Pruitt. I've never been a, a huge believer. My uh, my pessimism dates back to his lack of asparagus awareness. If you're a, an adult man and you don't know what asparagus is, how are you going to beat Alabama? How are you going to win an SEC championship? It's just basic um, awareness. So I'm not I'm not really high on his ability to turn this thing around. If anything, look like you know they're going to beat Vanderbilt? I think they're going to. Uh, I don't know. They should. I, mean, I really don't I mean, know. if they don't, they God, God help them. But this is three and seven. This is a three and 17. They were ranked like in up... the top, what, yeah. 20? They were certainly 15? ranked in the top 20 to start the season. Yeah, and they were in the in the teens when, when they played Georgia. And they're going to end the year very likely, unless they turn things around with wins against South Carolina, Missouri, and Vanderbilt. That's a great season for Tennessee. Well, and look, uh, similarly, Michigan's got Wisconsin at home this week, assuming Wisconsin's going to be able to play, and it seems like they're on track to do that. I mean, it's same thing for Michigan. Like, you lose this one, and it it's the spiral. You're in the death spiral. Mm-hmm. In, and look, their season's already over. Their season's already ruined to the extent that uh, – uh, they had any goals for, for this year, but uh, one and three, I mean, geez, 
that would be that would be a pretty disastrous uh, situation for Michigan. And also, I mean, look, it's the last chance saloon here for for Nebraska and Penn State, who are a combined zero and five, playing each other to salvage anything from this season for either one. And I'm not sure the season is salvageable for Penn State at this point when you lose to Maryland like that. But I mean, the, the idea that you could say Penn State could start 0-4, like I don't even know how people wrap their minds around that. Yeah. Um, off-season opt-outs, injuries, and then the idea that you're in a pandemic and you don't know what you're playing for. I think you might have written this or said this yesterday. I think that's all contributing to Penn State being being on the fritz. I still think they're going to end up 500. Um, their schedule is is very easy from this point forward, all things considered. I, I don't think they should lose to Nebraska. Um, they do go at Michigan, but they get Rutgers, Michigan State, Iowa. So they're going to end up with a mediocre record. But I think a lot more was expected of Penn State, fair or not, than this, because this is unexpectedly disappointing. And, and what do you make of Nebraska at this point? Um, look, I, I don't think anyone thought they were – some great team coming into the season, but their big problem is their offense. And, you know, Scott Frost at UCF, uh, he was only there two years, but that second year they were maybe the second best offense in the country right there with Oklahoma. And they just can't seem to get it translated to what they're doing up there. Yeah. I think there's issues at quarterback. There's an issue with identity and um, the window is closing. You know what I mean? Like when you're, we know this, like when you're a a new head coach, even one like a Scott Frost, who's got a longer leash than maybe anyone in the country outside of the guys who are extremely successful, you got to capitalize early. And when you don't capitalize, even in a pandemic year, like if you go through three years and you're at the bottom of the big 10 West, all three years, what are you selling anymore? So I think that's the fear for Nebraska is that the window's closing and, and it won't reopen. Like, you know, it's hard to sell it after you've been bad three years in a row. So there's a serious concern, I think, uh, about um, the ability to show something resembling positivity to build forward, build on going forward. So we're trying to look through the games next week to see if there's anything else particularly interesting. Uh, USC goes to Arizona. We'll see. That that should not be a difficult game for USC on paper, uh, at least you wouldn't think. Indiana, they're going to try to keep it rolling at Michigan State. Michigan State uh, – kind of regressed to the mean this past week, did not uh, play very well at all. Um, man, it's slim pickings here. Yeah, Ohio, Ohio State's going to Maryland. And, you know, shout out to Maryland for kind of getting this thing straightened out. They, they, um, they looked awful in that season opener against uh, Northwestern. You got beat by 40 points. Everyone's kind of writing the Mike Loxley career obituary. And then they've kind of rallied here. They, they beat Minnesota in overtime and then they beat Penn state and they dominated that game even more than 35, 19. Look, Ohio state's going to beat Maryland and I don't think it'll be particularly close, but uh, Maryland does have talent, you know, and it's just a matter of whether or not, they could kind of be organized enough to to show what kind of talent they have and, and credit to them. They've done that the last couple of weeks. Yeah. I don't think on a national level uh, fans know how much beating Penn state means to Maryland. I mean, it means a whole lot for recruiting uh, reputation of the program. Uh, James Franklin and Maryland are, are the best of buddies. So it's a really, really important win for Maryland. 
and the fact that they're going to get trounced by Ohio State, I, I still think they're going to head out at two and two going into next weekend, the 21st, and feel really good about where they are as, as a team in, in Loxley's second year. All right, well, I think that's going to wrap it up, man, because there's just not any other games really to talk about as far as next week. It's uh, like we said, it's it's a very uninspiring schedule, but uh, as we've talked about before on this podcast, grateful for college football to be happening at all. So for Paul Meyerberg, I'm Dan Wolken. Thanks to Eric Smith for coming on the podcast to talk about how we do the poll. This has been the Inside the Amway Coaches Poll Podcast presented by USA Today Sports. We'll be back here same time next week. You've been listening to Inside the Amway Coaches Poll from USA Today Sports. Listen and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Dehydration is more common than you think. Even when people drink the recommended eight servings of water a day, This can be offset by drinking caffeinated beverages, alcohol, and having a diet high in sodium. Medical professionals recommend moving away from the carbonated soft drinks due to the sugar, calories, and artificial flavors and colors. Sparkling water has gained in popularity recently because it provides the bubbly, elevated experience of a carbonated soft drink without the junk you don't want. Hydration is key, not only when you work out, but also during everyday activities. Excess sparkling waters help me stay hydrated plus more. With seven flavors and no sugar or artificial flavors, colors, or preservatives. Stay hydrated and avoid the sugar and calories of carbonated soft drinks with excess sparkling waters. For more information, go to mway.com and search sparkling water.